Okay, greetings everybody and welcome to our Chicken in Every Pot podcast. Uh, I am Clodagh Harrington. I work at University College Cork. I'll hand you to my colleague for his introduction. Hello everyone, it's uh, Alex Alexborn here from University of Leicester. Uh, and today we're delighted to have you and Morgan. I'll let Clodagh say a few more words. Sure, yeah, I couldn't be happier to introduce today's uh, guest, who is Emeritus Professor of US Studies at the Institute of the Americas at UCL. Many of you listening will know you and very well anyway, I, I'm sure. Um, I'm not going to spend time uh, going through his, his, his vast, uh, truly vast uh, back catalogue of, of achievements, uh, both scholarly and in the media, um, etc. But I will flag up to particularly relevant um, publications that are sort of uh, acting as the basis for, for our conversation today. Um, one is uh, his work on Reagan, American Icon, uh, uh, published by Ivy Taurus uh, some time back, and more recently from 2022, his tome on FDR, Transforming the Presidency, which was published by Bloomsbury, and I recently read, which is just fantastic. Um, so thank you so much, Ewan, for, for joining us. We're delighted to have you here. I'm not feeling the pressure at all as my uh, former PhD supervisor. I know you'll be um, completely non-judgmental at our, our questions, approach, and level of knowledge. Um, so thanks for being with us. And I'm just going to start with, um, I guess, maybe an opener, something for to kind of get a, a sense of your thoughts of, of where things are today, particularly in relation to the Republican Party, which we've been kind of thinking and talking a lot about recently. So what do you think that Ronald Reagan would make of today's Republican Party in its current form? Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, my uh, feeling is that Reagan would be very saddened with the uh, state of uh, today's uh, GOP. Uh, uh, even though Reagan uh, was highly criticized by uh, the left, liberal Democrats in particular, in his heart of hearts, he was a consensus politician. And he saw himself as uh, the president of all Americans, even those who didn't vote for him. And uh, by and large, uh, Reagan uh, did not engage in vituperative uh, uh, attacks, uh, political or personal, on his uh, on his opponents, uh, and he maintained, as far as possible, cordial relations with leading Democrats like uh, House Speaker Tip O'Neill. Sure, there was conflict. But by and large, uh, the Reagan the, the, the Reagan presidency uh, w didn't seek to polarize and divide in the way that uh, uh, the Trump presidency did. You just to elaborate on that. I mean, there's, there's different things there. You know, obviously, issue on polarization, and I guess conservatives or Republicans in today's world might reply that. Democrats had moved, you know, the polarization's a two-way street, it's not simply the Republican Party. Um, but also, in policy terms, how do you think Reagan, is, is it still the party of Reagan in policy terms, do you think, or has there been a, is, is the party of Trump significant? I mean, there are some areas where I think there is real difference on immigration and on trade, I think, would be two areas where you'd say that it's not the party of the 1980s anymore. Um, but I guess more broadly, the first part of that question is, you know, to what is, is this an area of where you think the Republican Party or the polarization is something we should blame, if that's the right word, mostly on Republicans, or is it blame equally apportioned between the two parties? And second, just going back to Republicans and policy, what, what other areas would you say that the party of Trump is not the party of Reagan, if that makes sense? Well, I thought to answer that by talking about uh, what uh, some scholars have called the great sorting okay when uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was president uh, uh, the South was just beginning to complete its transition into the Republican Party uh, although uh, it was by no means complete because the South did not become Republican in congressional terms until the 1994 midterms they had two parties in the 1980s, uh, which had uh, conservative wings, and uh, in the case of the Republicans, a moderate wing, in the case of the Democrats, a liberal wing. So, uh, you, you know, there was a, a sort of balancing there. Uh, as the South became overwhelmingly Republican, 
the Democrats lost their conservative win that uh, they had to appease to uh, in in ter- in policy terms and couldn't move too far left uh, whilst they still had this conservative wing. But uh, with the ditching of the conservative wing, of course, the Democrats became overwhelmingly a liberal party, and they also um, uh, captured a lot of Republican constituencies uh, in what might be called moderate uh, constituencies uh, held previously by moderate Republicans. So you had the two parties becoming what uh, 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 people had always spoken of as an ideal, uh, disciplined, ideological, cohesive parties. And of course, uh, uh, that is fine in theory, but if you have very, very tight competition between such parties, they're going to turn to base mobilization uh, as uh, a necessary foundation for victory uh, the party that can turn out uh, the uh, largest part of its base tends to win, and you mobilize the base through the politics of polarization. The Republicans, I think, have uh, practiced this far more than the Democrats have. And of course, the Republicans have acquired uh, this uh, southern wing to its party that it never had before, a southern wing which was uh, a drag on democratic liberalism during the period of liberal ascendancy. And uh, that southern wing, I think, is the Trumpian wing of the party now. Uh, uh, emphasis on uh, cultural issues, uh, emphasis on uh, anti-wokeness, uh, and so on. Uh, which And uh, it is also the party, of course, of the South, economically protectionism rather than free trade, and uh, government help for industries, uh, uh, the agriculture, of course. So it's not a free market uh, um, uh, element in the Republican Party. And I think that is different now to the Sunbelt version of the Republican Party, which Reagan championed, uh, optimistic, uh, free trade, free markets, the one area where I think they are wholeheartedly locked together, but for different reasons, is that both are still the party of ta- of low taxes. But if you peel away beyond that, uh, there are significant differences. I, I think uh, uh, low taxes, anti-regulation, and uh, by and large, uh, a, a more restrained uh, interpretation of the uh, constitutional rights, but uh, the uh, Trump Republican Party has gone much further uh, than the Reagan Republican Party ever dared. Yeah, uh, sorry, I completely agree with that. One word which you mentioned uh, away from policy, you talk about the optimism of the Reagan era, um, Mm. and that seems to that seems a long time ago in terms of uh, contemporary Republican politics, and and, and, and again, the idea of Reagan as a president of the whole nation, uh, even including those. And, and I don't think we should rewrite the 1980s. There was a lot of antagonism towards the Reagan administration. For, for oh, yeah. Um, uh, but, and, and, you know, we, again, we need to be careful of hindsight, but I think there was certainly, if you, know, if you read Reagan's speeches and you, you, know, you look at Reagan, and actually even better watch them, I think there's a, that, that optimism uh, really comes through in a, in a way that is, is, is wholly missing holy missing today. Yes, I think uh, if uh, Reagan, uh, the word that most accurately summed up Reagan, I suppose, is optimism, and the word that uh, comes to mind with the Trump Republican Party is anger. Uh, Reagan's a very forward-looking Republican. Uh, you know, he's always talking about America's best days are ahead of it. And, uh, you know, the whole thing about they, they both had MAGA slogans that 1980, Reagan ran on the slogan, let's make America great again. Uh, Trump uh, ran the course on make America great again. But somehow uh, Reagan had a vision of the future as even better. You know, the last uh, speech of any note was the 1992 Republican convention. And he says, we are the country of tomorrow. A revolution did not end at Yorktown. Whereas I think Trump, I'm not taking a cheap shot here, 
doesn't even know that Yorktown was a battle in the American Revolution and uh, probably doesn't understand history in that way. You know, if you think about Trump, make America great again, what's he thinking about? 1950s, not the 1960s, surely. Uh, You know, this is something I've always wondered about Trump. Okay, when was uh, the ideal of American greatness? And if you say the 50s, that's very... Uh, significant because of course uh, uh, if you were black the 50s weren't that great I don't think they were that great if you were a woman uh, with aspirations to be anything other than a homemaker yeah I don't yeah I was make America great again with completely different meanings, I think, from what, the way that they were expressed, or different, you know, different implications. Uh, where Trump is very backward-looking, and uh, uh, in, 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 as you say, in a quite, um, quite, uh, uh, very dis- dis- distasteful way, I think. And, and Reagan's was it was forward-looking. It was, it, you know, in the sense of it. Reagan's was a, really it was about the last four years. It was about the Carter administration. But in response to what he said, uh, let's not sugarcoat the 1980s. Uh, uh, let's remember the 1980s when a pretty bad decade for young black males. Uh, this is when the uh, intensification of the war on drugs led to mass incarceration of uh, uh, young blacks uh, to, to the extent that some scholars have seen this as a policy of racial control. And uh, it's worth noting that however sunny and optimistic Ronald Reagan was, uh, that was not a view held by uh, most African-Americans. In 1986, uh, one poll of African-Americans by the Washington Post uh, found 56% of respondents thought he was a racist. And, uh, um, you know, you come back to this again, uh, uh, when Reagan died, uh, he was celebrated by white America but not by black America. So, you know, it it depends who's looking at Reagan and who's uh, seeing him as sunny and optimistic. But that's true of every politician. I'm sure that, yeah, it's a podcast for a different day, actually, to think about the different ways, perhaps in which Reagan and Thatcher, who were seen very much in the same way at the time, but the different ways in which they remembered, I think. Yeah, anyway, I'll let Claudia jump in on yeah, I'm just thinking about the, you know, how how far to the right was Reagan, and thinking about the kind of the, you know, the the hope versus fear kind of agenda that 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 one can have. I mean, there was a real sense with him, I think, that, um, you know, again, bearing in mind everything that you've just said, but there was a sense that sort of radiated from him that things can only get better. And I mean, you could maybe hopefully mm. apply that to, to to all Americans at the time because you know they were you know, quite difficult for, for, for certain groups, as, as we've just said. Um, if we think about, if we just bring, bring it forward a bit and think about sort of, you know, uh, uh, there's Reagan and there's Reaganism, I suppose, and in, in a similar way that there's Trump and Trumpism. And I wonder now if, you know, you've, you said how, how you use the word saddened in relation to how Reagan might, might, might sort of perceive uh, today's GOP. If we think about where where things are, I know we're going to we're we're going to reflect back um, in 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 a few minutes on 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 um, uh, sort of more historical issues. But just just for a moment, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Ron DeSantis. But I'm mindful that he is kind of at the moment outflanking Trump or trying to outflank Trump in in terms of Trumpism. So he's being trying to be more Trumpist than Trump. And I wonder, is that somewhere you see the party? capable and willing to go like yeah kind of f- further to the right of trump really or or in in, in a more kind of um uh, policy based way or is that not a strategy that's going to work for DeSantis? Do you think that it's more about Donald Trump than actual Trumpism? I, I, I'm not sure myself. Well, you know, at the moment it is Trump's party, and it seems that every time there's an indictment against him or an alleged misdemeanor, the party rallies to him. But you know, I do have the feeling that you know we focus on Trump. Uh, as if, uh, you know, there's this man walking around uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, and uh, he had become the, uh, I don't know, the Abraham Lincoln of uh, uh, white Republicans. Uh, 
uh, whereas in fact, uh, I think uh, we ignore what's happening in the states and the localities and the community governmental organizations, particularly school boards, at our peril. There's, there's something going on in America. You know, we just we just see in Britain the highlights of uh, uh, national politics and a few uh, uh, states uh, thrown into the mix. But, you know, uh, there is this battle for the meaning of America. And, you know, it goes right down. It used to be said that, uh, you know, the party would elect uh, a, a ticket down to the local dog catcher. Well, now dog catching isn't so important. Dog whistling is. But uh, fundamentally, you know, it goes right down to school boards. And uh, uh, DeSantis in Florida is right in the forefront of that battle of uh, academic and scholarly freedom, book banning and so on. And, uh, you know, it's a minority who want this. But politics is not a mass phenomenon in terms of activism. Uh, you know, this is something I think we've got to grasp. But for most Americans, politics isn't that important, even in today's polarized times. Uh, maybe once every four years, yes. But for uh, uh, supporters of what I would call Trumpism, as opposed to merely Trump, I think politics is very, very important, and they are gearing as if for a political war against the opposition. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is, you, I mean, the emphasis on looking beyond the national level, looking below the national level to get an understanding of what's happening within both parties, but I think in terms of some of the actions which have been taken most, obviously within the Republican Party, um, we we don't need to get into debates on uh, trans issues now, but again, it's a good example of the way in which I think at mm. state level, I think it's about 20 states now, Republican, under, largely under Republican control, which have introduced legislation on, yeah. on trans rights. So, when, I guess I say, without getting into debates about that, it does, you know, clearly it's, it's, it's activism at a local level um, and clearly is appealing to, you know, it's designed to appeal to core Republican voters yeah. in that context. Um, do you think are there any? I mean, I, I, beyond the, just just and we, you know, I, when the point today is not to discuss the twenty twenty four Republican nominee nation battle. But just, do you think there are any candidates beyond Trump and DeSantis? I mean, it's very, I know it's very speculative. I mean, the the, the people who in normal times might to me seem like serious candidates, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. But I think, is there any room for them? Well, my view is that the more Republican candidates there are, the better it is for Trump, uh, because, uh, you know, they split up the anti-Trump vote. Uh, if Trump was running against DeSantis and DeSantis alone, uh, I think that uh, uh, the situation would be uh, less clear-cut. Uh, I can't, well, we're, we're still 18 months out. Another historian, I should say, let's focus on the past rather than try to explain the future that isn't here yet. But I can't see anybody defeating Trump at the moment. Uh, um, th that said, there are many contingencies that could happen. Uh, and um, uh, you never know uh, uh, if DeSantis uh, uh, emulates um, uh, uh, by winning the uh, uh, winning in uh, the, in Iowa, and then to, unlike the cruise goes on to develop momentum, you know he could make it. So uh, it's not out of the question. But uh, if I were to bet, uh, my money would be on Trump. Regrettably. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, well, let's, yeah, Trump or DeSantis, let's leave that aside for a moment. I mean, just to pivot from that, in terms of Trump being the Republican nominee, then that leads us with another likely rerun of, of Biden and, and, and Trump. So that takes us into sort of this, takes us to the other uh, aspects of your work, which is thinking about the Democratic Party and, and its political and policy history. So, um, I, this is a, 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 you know, to think, is, is Trump the party? Is the current Republican Party still the party of Reagan? Is you know there, there are clear lineages and, and and you can you can track that through. That over a longer time frame, do you, to what extent do you think that the Democrats 
can still justifiably claim to be the party. And this goes back to your work on Roosevelt. So is the contemporary Democratic Party still identifiably the party of the New Deal and Roosevelt, do you think? Well, it is uh, in the broadest sense. Um, we've got to realise that uh, um, the uh, conditions in which the Roosevelt Democratic Party came into being uh, were somewhat unique, uh, and uh, that uh, uh, the the so-called New Deal order, uh, if uh, I can use that phrase that. Uh, a number of historians uh, now uh, employ uh, New Deal order lasted up until the end of the 70s and um, the associated liberal ascendancy that um, was based on a New Deal commitment to ensure economic security um, uh, not initially but ultimately group rights and fundamentally uh, a guarantee of uh, uh, American democracy. Um, but in the 1980s, the Democrats, of course, uh, uh, came up against uh, a new economic doctrine, and uh, they've had to uh, adapt to that. Uh, you know, some historians see Bill Clinton as the Eisenhower of the, of the Democratic Party having to adapt to a new conservative order in the ways that Eisenhower had to adapt uh, to uh, a dominant liberal order and try to find a middle line. Uh, I think the Democratic Party today has a different set of issues, but in Biden, uh, it has a president who is the uh, uh, greatest admirer of FDR of any president in on the Democratic side since LBJ. Paradoxically, I was going to say since LBJ, but of course, uh, that's uh, a Miss Ronald Reagan, who is also a great admirer of FDR. But uh, talking in terms of uh, uh, the Democratic Party, uh, you know, Biden sees this as, as a moment of renewal, uh, of necessary moment of renewal and reassertion of American democracy. Uh, having come through the pandemic, that's a crisis uh, of uh, a different kind of crisis, but a very significant crisis. FDR with the president in crisis, but FDR also takes office at a time when American democracy is under threat. Had the depression gone on for much longer, would American constitutional traditions have been sustained? Um, FDR uh, thought not. Um, just before his inauguration, uh, his, one of his uh, friends said, uh, if you restore faith in government's capacity to uh, deal with the economy, you will go down in history as America's greatest president. And Roosevelt responded, if I don't, I'll be the last president. You know, that he, he saw the rise of possible authoritarian figures. And of course, uh, that is exactly the situation that Biden faces in that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the institutions of American democracy are under threat. Uh, you have uh, a, a move away from majoritarianism today, most obviously in the case of the Supreme Court, uh, but also in case of, you know, look at the Senate, uh, um, all these uh, small states which are fundamentally red, and they're a, a ticket to uh, not perpetual uh, Republican uh, uh, domination, but it's very difficult for the Democrats to hold on to the Senate. They have it now, but it's a, it's a big struggle. And even in the House, you know, uh, by and large, Democrats tend to win more votes in House elections, far more votes in House elections nationwide than the uh, uh, the Republicans do, but the Republican vote is more efficiently spread. Uh, so, you know, you, some people would say, and I, I have to say that some truth in this, that the American democracy is under threat. So there is a comparability between Biden and FDR in terms of the challenge they face, uh, not in terms of their style, uh, 
And of course, Biden doesn't have the uh, political vigor and vivacity of, uh, of FDR. The Democratic Party he leads is more left-wing than he is, whereas in the case of FDR, he was in tune with the new forces coming into the Democratic Party in the 1930s who wanted change, trade unions, um, urban ethnics, women, uh, and African-Americans. Yeah, thanks, you. We'll put a, put a pen in the question around democracy and maybe come back to that later. Um, just, uh, just hogging this bit. Um, the, the, and your point about the dem- clearly this, this shift in American society over the last 100 years account for a lot of the change. But if we just look at the economic policy, other, and the quite recent phenomenon has been the way in which the Biden administration has sort of now decided to own the term Bidenomics um, mm-hmm. and, and, and try and sell what's good about the economy. Do you think, is, is Bidenomics, going, going, again, going, going back to the question of comparisons, because there's always been this temptation, I think, well, not always, but with, with, with Obama, you know, remember the Time magazine cover where they mocked by uh, Obama or Percy Roosevelt, and again, some comparisons with with, with Biden and, and, and Roosevelt. I don't think anyone compared Clinton to Roosevelt, to be honest. But, um, but no. is that a legitimate comparison in terms of economic policy, given the very different, clearly the very different circumstances, in terms of what Biden's trying to do and the room for manoeuvre he's got to do it in? Well, there is and there isn't. Uh, FDR assumed office at a time of the greatest economic crisis in American history. But there's also a sense uh, that uh, the American economy is now a mature economy, uh, that the uh, opportunities for growth uh, uh, that existed in the 19th century, development of new land, development of new industries like railroads, industrial revolution, uh, these these are all diminishing, and what now has to be done is a more equitable distribution of existing resources. Uh, growth, economic growth, did not become an issue for the New Deal until its mild Keynesian phase in the late 1930s, and economic growth was uh, embraced as an issue then in, when the the renewal of the American economy in World War II showed what was possible in the post-war era. But in many regards, the early New Deal was about stabilization and recovery, not about growth. Biden uh, is taking a long view, certainly. uh, There's no sense that uh, the American economy is in the kind of mature stage of development where there aren't opportunities for uh, new industries, uh, new enterprise to emerge. But there's a threat of China. And what Biden is trying to do is to improve America's infrastructure, improve America's uh, IT uh, 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 resources, improve its brain power, improve industries that are going to be part of the future. Uh, and in that sense, uh, he is pursuing what some call an industrial policy, which was not really part of the New Deal's brief. Okay. Also, can I just one one thing that's striking me uh, listening to the 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 the, the use of Bidenomics now? It's it's kind of in the ether very much at the moment. It's obviously been kind of used mm-hmm. as some kind of bumper sticker campaign slogan kind of thing. And previously, it might have been that. You know, if you, pe- the, the people who talked about Bidenomics might have been, you know, kind of a, economist nerds or politics nerds or whatever, whereas now it's come into the mainstream more or less. Um, I wonder, is that is is that Biden kind of maybe owning it a bit more retrospectively now? Because the economy is quite strong and, and quite good, obviously could be better. But, you know, unemployment's low, etc. It's 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 in a relatively good place. So is is he sort of trying to take the phrase make it his own and say, look, things are actually okay. Things are better than people think. Because if you look at the public opinion polls, people are anxious, they're concerned about the future, they're negative about where the country's going, blah, blah. But if you look at like kind of economic data, it it seems to be okay. It seems to be going in a relatively um, 
uh, optimistic and, and, and strong direction. So he's got a kind of a powerful story to tell in that regard, doesn't he? Coming up to 2024, as in, this is what's happening on my watch, this is what I've done, and here's where we're going. And he's not just playing to the immediate, um, you know, short-term uh, sort of uh, benefit and, 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 and voter rallying, because a lot of that Bidenomics agenda seems to me to be like a, a long game. He's looking like forward to the future. Um, and that's yeah, got to uh, be attractive to, to, to some at least. Yeah, well, that is true. Um, it, interestingly, uh, Alex said about uh, the uh, Time magazine cover, uh, Bidenomics has also made several covers of The Economist, although The Economist is critical of it, its industrial policy inclinations. Uh, but it is interesting. Uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, infrastructure investment by the government now. And uh, what's also very significant is if you look where this infrastructure investment is going, and you expect it to be going to states like New York, Illinois, um, uh, the, the upper Midwest as part of the uh, uh, quasi-pork barrel politics. But it's actually going to... The, a lot of Sunbelt states uh, in the South, uh, the big beneficiaries of uh, Biden-era public investment have been Texas and South Carolina, of all places. Uh, uh, and uh, um, this is playing a very long game because, of course, uh, uh, any uh, 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 any public project that uh, uh, benefits from federal monies uh, Biden or one of his administration guys turns up pretty, pretty saying this the other day, and lo and behold, uh, uh, a Republican congressman who has voted against uh, the the legislation uh, from which the money is derived also turns up and says, "I did this, I got this." this. So you know, it it is a dangerous game, but but it is a long game, and uh, uh, it, it, you know, America needs. Uh, to take a long view of uh, political and economic development. Uh, it's been, uh, it hasn't done that, it hasn't been able to do that for quite some time. Yeah, I, mean, I think I, 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 would, I would take the time of the Biden administration just to just credit for this, that it's, it, it's particularly, I know Democrats have this hope that Texas is becoming a purple state, which seems a bit optimistic in the near term, but South Carolina becoming a, even a sort of less than deep red state seems a long way off. So maybe just give them credit for, you know, this is the policy that's based on national interest, I guess, rather than... Yeah. than, than yeah. And maybe even beyond national interest as well. I mean, I don't know if I'm sort of projecting too 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 far beyond what, what he's trying to do. But, I mean, I think, like, the, 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 the Labour Party in the UK are very interested in... The, the kind of the nuts and bolts of Bidenomics and, and yeah. what the kind of structural process of, of, of that is as, as a kind of a, a, you know, a possible template for their own, you know, if they get into power or whatever. And also just the idea, I mean, even, you know, publications like the FT saying that, you know, Bidenomics is going to roll out in a way that's sort of beyond Biden himself, that, you know, this is not going to be yeah. a sort of a genie that gets put back in the bottle and things like greening the economy and stuff that, you know, other countries are, are doing anyway. But that 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 sort of approach that the Biden administration is particularly taking is is seems to me above and beyond just a strategy for, you know, 18 months time or whatever it is, which is really admirable, I think, if, if a bit risky. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the last Democratic president who had the an economic strategy named after him, of course, was Bill Clinton, Clintonomics, and uh, that came a cropper with the uh, uh, 2001 uh, uh, Wall Street crash uh, and the emergence of uh, George Bush. Uh, um, Biden, however, I think uh, is uh, uh, taking a more forward-looking uh, uh, strategy, and what links him to FDR is that the state has a very act and the national state has a very active role in guiding economic development and uh, that that is one of the fundamental legacies of the new deal that uh, uh, you can't leave things to the private market uh, the vagaries of uh, 
capitalism can't be uh, trusted uh, uh, to deliver uh, uh, in the national interest. You have to have an active state. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you, you might say that um, uh, the New Deal did this. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I've asked several classes of students uh, when I... Uh, uh, postgraduates, I might say, when I teach the New Deal. Okay, other than Franklin D. Roosevelt, name me a New Dealer. So they go through Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah, yeah, Harry Hopkins, yeah, Henry Wallace, yeah. Okay, and then after about five, they stop. And then I say, how about Jesse Jones? And they say, who? And I say, well, Jesse Jones was the Houston banker uh, whom Roosevelt picked to... Uh, had the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. And uh, Jesse Jones was an old Bryanite who hated Wall Street. And consequently, he used the capital resources of the RFC to develop uh, the Southwest and laid the foundation for the development of the Sun Belt, which of course was the long-term consequence of uh, infrastructure investment in the 1930s and 1940s. So, you know, the New Deal had this developmental aspect to it, uh, which we tend to forget uh, because of the focus on economic recovery. Uh, but Biden, I think, is taking a leaf out of SDR's book in that regard, in the sense of looking to the future and creating a more stable economy through government involvement. Uh, not government control, but uh, government, uh, uh, how can I put this, uh, uh, government management uh, to, to try to shift resources around the country uh, to better distribution on a thing. And just quick, if you can do this briefly, and without getting into the weeds here, and you mentioned the economists' attacks on, or attacks or criticisms, perhaps is a milder word to use, yeah. of that industrial policy. What, what, what grounds does the economist, what grounds is it sceptical of, of, of the bad Well, the, you know, the economist still clings to this notion that uh, uh, government has a role, but not too, not too dirty the role. And... Uh, uh, it is opposed to industrial policy because you're trying to pick winners. And uh, uh, the economists feel that there should be uh, more free flow of capital and investment because business knows better where to invest. Uh, and that uh, there's a lot of waste and inefficiency involved in uh, government industrial policy. And uh, it can sometimes be the wrong industry to develop. I think Biden is relatively uh, uh, immune from that charge. You know, he's trying to develop green industries. He's trying to bring foreign investment into the country. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, spread, spread the goodies around. Uh, and in a way, I think that that is uh, a very important thing to do. Uh, you know, Trump thrives on the feeling of many Americans outside the large metropolises that they have been overlooked, largely white Americans. And if you can show what government can do in terms of uh, uh, infrastructure development, uh, uh, indirect creation of jobs uh, via public investment, uh, then uh, uh, government will be seen in a more positive light. Uh, uh, you know, uh, America, many white Americans in what we can call the flyover states of the middle, the small towns of Pennsylvania, uh, uh, Ohio, Indiana, etc. You know, they 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 don't see government doing anything for them and. That is one of the reasons for the polarization. Uh, uh, so, you know, this I, I don't know if it's part of Biden's strategy uh, or the Biden administration's strategy. We shouldn't focus purely on the president himself, the much bigger array of policymakers. Uh, but I think uh, uh, that building back 
in FDR's day, government was good. Trump made it bad. Ronald Reagan made it bad. Ronald Reagan said government is not the solution to a problem, government is the problem. Well, I think the Democrats are trying to restore uh, that positive view of government uh, which uh, FDR created. I think also as well, just one thing, just thinking about that, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the long game is great, but obviously doesn't always kind of give people a, a sense of, you know, well, what about me today? You know, never mind my grandchildren or somebody else's grandchildren. But there are kind of smaller, um, you know, kind of quick wins as well, I think, aren't there? Things I you know I was reading about things like um, people being able to get... Um, hearing aids over the counter now rather than some convoluted prescription yeah. route. so like that's just a one random tiny thing but those kinds of immediate benefits that people that's the kind of stuff that people chat about in a cafe isn't it oh wait till i tell you about this thing that happened you know that sort of thing which gives people a feeling that things are actually getting better even though there might be relatively trivial but i think it kind of symbolically they carry quite a bit of weight and he seems to be good at that i think clinton was quite good at doing that sort of thing as well even when clinton was losing big there were some times where he was able to kind of put treats or or kind of quick um, you know, benefits out there for, for, for voters. And I, it seems to me that the Biden administration is astute at that. Um, so, so working the kind of the long game, the shorter game, big projects and smaller ones as well. So there, there's an awful lot going on, it seems, you know. For the, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, if there's an Achilles heel in the, well, there are several problematic uh, issues, but uh, the big Achilles heel the ones the Republicans are playing on is inflation. The one the Republicans are playing on is inflation, okay? Everybody understands inflation. You know, I'm paying more today than I paid last year. And last year I was paying more than I paid two years ago. Now, if inflation comes down, and at the moment it looks as if it is coming down, that um, gas uh, prices at the pump are coming down, Food prices haven't come down as much, although they've come down far more than they have in Britain. If by the 2024 election, the sting had been taken out of the inflationists, and that uh, uh, the and this is something Biden can't control, the Federal Reserve is easing borrowing requirements. Uh, don't forget that in the American system, uh, the um, Federal Reserve controls the all-important credit and monetary part of economic policy. It's not within the president's gift. But if, if inflation is coming down, uh, that would tend to encourage the Federal Reserve to ease monetary policy, uh, which has been tightened of late, not in draconian fashion compared to what Paul Volcker did in the early Reagan years, but compared to what monetary policy has been since the um, great uh, crash and recession of 2007-9. Uh, you know, if all that were to come to pass in the next 18, 18 months, uh, if the economy is looking good and people, and if very importantly, if people are feeling good about it, because the one that worries me is, uh, from a democratic perspective is the polls that show a constant and clear majority believing that the country is on the wrong track. That's the one you've got to worry about. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I do want us to very quickly get on to think about broader questions of governability and democracy. But just, I think the very, the latest data that's come out suggests that wage growth has overtaken inflation in terms of, you know, wage growth has just gone above the inflation rate uh, in the last release of data. Now, clearly that's a, that could be a blip rather than a trend. Um, but if it is a trend, that, then there's 18 months in which that might, um, yeah. It, you know that might lead to a change in that public opinion, but if, if inflation jumps again, then that's a that's a that's a problem. And just to say, any US or UK listeners, we're talking about the US inflation rate coming down. Sadly, where doesn't seem to be the case here. But I know you wanted to ask quickly about sort of government capacity and democracy as well. Oh yeah, there's some big questions considering we've only got, <laughs> yeah. got, got, got a few minutes left. I guess just one one super quick question, uh, Ewan, before we kind of go to our, our, our closing comments. Um, I wondered if, if if in all of this, can you see, 
are well I, I think you do see but could you maybe just give us give us your thoughts on how how you see the ways in which FDR was actually a role model for Reagan well um Reagan of course used to be a democrat voted FDR for FDR four times uh in all of FDR's elections uh, uh but came to the conclusion that uh, uh FDR had always intended his programs to be a temporary emergency responses to great pressure this was the rationalization FDR regarded programs as permanent uh Reagan recognized that FDR uh had uh, captured the mood of the nation uh through very positive public political communication and Reagan models himself on FDR uh okay so you might say well of course Reagan was a, an actor so he knew all about communication there was more to it than that uh and um uh, Re- Re- Reagan knew just like FDR about the need for performance uh, you know we think of FDR as the first radio president he was also the first newsreel president sound newsreel president newsreel is very very important often overlooked uh, FDR also traveled the country on a regular basis uh, even though they, he didn't get on board planes he got on board trains trains were his famous favorite mode of travel could get off uh could you know stop then do uh, whistle stop uh, speeches from the back of the train um but, but coming back to this uh, idea you know Ronald Reagan introduces in 1982 weekly radio commentaries about his presidency and he's a very good communicator on radio and you know you can listen to the radio anywhere different kind of TV uh, you know Re- Reagan learns the art of, Re- Reagan sees uh, FDR as the greatest polit- uh, practitioner of political communication whom he wants to emulate and he recognizes uh, the necessity not only for optimism but sharing taking the american people into his confidence about why tax cuts are needed about why uh Russia needs to Soviet Union needs to be dealt with in the way that he is doing he's very good at explaining his policy um uh, but of course he's he is just before the coming a of 24 hour news and b of uh, uh the end of uh, the um, famous doctrine which is in uh, administration CEC Federal Communications Commission uh it started it removed in 1987 there the fragmentation of the media uh as a result of uh, um uh, the coming of digitalization coming of the, the internet uh, the uh, immediate news and then uh you know you what what, what you now have is Americans listen to the political the the political channel the channels rather uh, the outlets which confirm their opinions in other words you don't have debate you have the confirmation of your opinion this guy thinks like me and therefore you don't have that opportunity for debate exchange of ideas which uh, which you could have in FDR's day FDR built up an intimate relationship with the american people via his public communication but it isn't possible to do Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm I'm mindful of the time we've we've reached our our uh, 45 minutes. I wondered if we could just ask you um in closing you and have you any particular recommendations, any any reading, viewing, listening sources and resources that you would recommend to 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 listeners? We'd love to hear. Okay, well, I've got um a couple of things that uh, I would recommend. I'm an old guy, okay? I'm afraid I uh, I like to hold books in my hands, so I'm not going to recommend uh, any uh streaming or podcasts, all right? Uh, but if anybody is interested in the presidency and uh, uh political uh, communication, uh, I'd strongly recommend a book by David uh, Greenberg. 
called uh, The Republic of Spin. And it's a history of presidential communication from Theodore Roosevelt down to Barack Obama. Really lovely read and a fun read. You don't say that about most academic books. Um, I also very much like, it came out about five or six years ago, uh, it's uh, by an American historian called Jeremy, Jeremy Suri, called The Impossible Presidency. And Suri's argument is that uh, the responsibilities of the power of the presidency have become so great uh, that it's not really possible for the promise of the presidency to be fulfilled any longer. And he regards FDR as being the last president when the presidency was sufficiently small, and even though it was growing hugely in FDR's time, it hadn't reached the stage of uh, later development, and FDR was able to exercise leadership uh, over the presidential branch in a way that many of his successors have been unable to do because it has grown so large. Thank you. I, I, Fantastic. I, I'd really like to get you back on at some point to talk us through that about the presidency, actually, and particularly that the, the sort of odd conversation we sometimes have, one, one side sort of looking at the series argument, and I agree it's a, a really good book to read, the, the job's just too big for anyone, and simultaneously we've got this school of thought that the presidency's got too powerful uh, and abused his power. Now, the two aren't as in contradiction as that sounds, actually. I think that they, they sort of play off each other, but um, it'd be great to have you back. And what I can say, I, I haven't got a... a you and isn't my PhD supervisor, I can say. Uh, please, if anyone is listening and hasn't read Ewan's books on, on FDR and, and Reagan, then they are required reading. Stop now. what you're doing now. Yeah, I, in terms <laughs> of, you know, Ewan yeah. made the point, lots of academic books are, particularly, I think, in political science, they are not bad, they're, well, they're not fun to read. They're, they're, they're part of your job rather than, than something that you enjoy doing. But I think Ewan's books are... They are thoroughly scholarly, yet utterly readable, which is uh, which is something that we should all aspire to. Us, but few, very few of us get anywhere close to it. So uh, I can say that with great sincerity. I second that. Well, 100%. thank you very much. That's very kind of you uh, to say so. Uh, um, I, I, if I can just end on that, uh, uh, as I've grown older, I think. It is very important that we try to reach out beyond specialist audiences. And uh, I'm afraid one of the things we have to do is uh, communicate better, partly by rating better, but uh, also by doing the kinds of uh, initiatives that uh, you have taken in your podcast. So I wholeheartedly congratulate you on that. Well, we, we went on Thank you so much. <laughs> Well, I don't think we're going to we're going to take August off. I think is that the plan? We to... are, and we will be back with renewed vigor in September. So watch this space, and we'll be uh, tweeting about the next topic when the time comes. But for now, we want to say thank you so much, Professor Ewan Morgan. It's been a pleasure, and we truly hope you'll come back. Yes, and well, for those of you who are still listening, please spread the word. And if you if you, want, if you like it, and if you're still listening, you don't like it, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's okay, uh, too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. I enjoyed that.